I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 25. It's on page 176 in the Pew Bibles. Nothing like kicking off the new year with Leviticus. Bloody sacrifices, obscure laws, complicated rituals. In case you're wondering, yes, Pastor Sam and Pastor Stefan will be back next week. But I was drawn to Leviticus this morning because at the center of this book are instructions for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the Jewish year, and also a kind of spiritual New Year's Day. Yom Kippur was the day when an animal was sacrificed on behalf of all the people and their sins. It was sort of a a spiritual fresh start The blood of one sacrificed for the forgiveness of many. And chapter 25 tells us one of the ways that the Israelites were to celebrate this fresh start, this sort of spiritual new year. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. Count off seven Sabbath years. So a Sabbath year, this has just been explained in the section before this. This was a year when the people, remember this is an agricultural society, but the people were to to not actively plant or harvest their crops, kind of let the land lay fallow and trust that the Lord will provide what they need. So count off seven of these Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. And then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Now the next verses get into some detail about just what this liberty in verse 10 is talking about. And partly it's talking about freedom from debt. We're going to skip to verse 25. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem or or buy back what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, They are to determine the value for the years since they sold it and refund the balance to the one to whom they sold it. They can then go back to their property. But if they do not acquire the means to repay it, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee and they can then go back to their property. This is the word of the Lord. Are you tracking what's happening here? If something happens to you and you have to sell your property or your home, remember agricultural society, this is, this would be devastating if this happened, but if it were to happen, you had to sell your property or your home or Deuteronomy 14, which also talks about the same theme, says even if you have to sell yourself or your family into slavery to pay a debt, The ideal was that someone else in your family, think a rich uncle or something, would come in and pay the debt for you. But if that didn't happen, 
then every 50th year, on New Year's Day, a trumpet would sound, and whatever debt you owed, no matter the reason you owed it, no matter the size, that debt was canceled in the year of Jubilee. In other words, ancient Israel was to celebrate the the spiritual fresh start of their New Year's Day by completely turning their economy on its head. Can you imagine if we tried this in 2022? We just bought a house on this end of town. Who's going to explain this to the guy holding my mortgage at LMCU? Every element of the economy, right? Uh, Contracts, credit, interest, loans. It is staggering to imagine the financial implications of carrying this through. Frankly, if you were to do this, it would almost certainly cause way more trouble than it would ever do any good. And so perhaps it's not surprising that historians think This jubilee was never actually practiced. Even though it shows up in God's law twice, even though it takes up 81 verses between Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? It's not like you could say you missed it. And yet jubilee is probably one of the only laws in all of Scripture that no one ever practiced. Which makes you wonder... Why? Why did God, who who must have known it would never be practiced, why did God bother to put this in the Bible in the first place? I mean, it's 81 verses. I mean, this, this is prime scripture real estate. God could have given us some really practical laws here. I mean, think of all the moral issues God's people have fought over over the years. 81 verses. God God could have really clarified some things. But instead, he gives detailed instructions for an economic plan that is so extreme, so ridiculous, that his very own people didn't even think to try it once. What is God up to? To understand, I think it helps to go back a bit in time. So according to Pastor Sam in Alger 101 this fall, uh, Alger Park CRC started meeting in 1952. Did he get that right? All right. Now from the way Pastor Sam explained it, uh, it sounds like it was a pretty heady time. Like there was a lot of optimism, a deep sense of expectation of what God would do in and through this congregation. Houses were going up all over the neighborhood. Families were moving in. Alger Park seemed primed for great things. But for the sake of historical context, it may be worth mentioning something that Pastor Sam left out of his 101 class. Now, maybe he mentions it in 201. I don't know. And it's this. In the same year this church was started, it was legal and common for a bank in Grand Rapids to deny a loan to a person because of the color of their skin. A loan, say, to buy some of the new housing 
going up along Eastern and Algerian. In other words, in 1952, at the optimistic founding of our church, racism was not only widespread, it was government-sanctioned. Separate but equal, right? Jim Crow. That was the law. In many parts of the country, black Americans could not vote, could not buy a house, could not go to certain schools, could not worship in certain churches, even Christian reformed. Now, here's my question. Were people in 1952 more evil than people today? Were their hearts more twisted than ours? I doubt it. Uh, A lot of people I love were around in 1952. A lot of people here were around in 1952. I like these people. But what are we to think of the moral state of our country in 52? Why did we put up with such blatant discrimination right under our noses, right in our neighborhood? I suspect the reasons are many. But I think it's a little too simple to say it was just because people then were so much worse than people now. I think a better explanation for why maybe even some of the good people of Alger Park Church put up with such blatant discrimination is that it was normal. Now, I don't want to be naive about this. I I have no doubt that there were a whole lot of people, even people in this church, with foul, repulsive, unchristian actions and attitudes about people of other races. I know that because... uh, I've looked in my own heart a time or two, and there's some ugly stuff in there. So I'm not naive about what the human heart is capable of. But this is my hunch. For a lot of people, a lot of the time, racism, even foul and putrid racism, was not really a question of morality or ethics. It was just normal. It's the way it is. Maybe, you know, compared to lynching in the South, restrictive home loan policies seemed pretty tame. There was just an assumption, you know, that black people didn't belong here. That was the wisdom of the day. It was the law. Everybody knew it. It's just the way it was. So it was like that then, But it's not like that now, at least not in the same way. The question is why? Why does this history shock our conscience in ways it seems not to have 70 years ago? Well, some of you could tell me that a couple years after Alger Park was founded, uh, the Supreme Court voted 7 to 1 to overturn Jim Crow and separate but equal. And some of you could tell me that in the years that followed, the the Supreme Court brought decision after decision further dismantling Jim Crow laws in the country. So a lot of things were changing. But of course, those were just laws, not people's hearts. When did people's hearts really start changing? Well, I don't think it happened uh, quickly or all at once. And in many ways, it's 
really not done yet. But for a lot of people, at least in retrospect, they point to August 28, 1963. A preacher, of all people, a preacher, stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and he told us about a dream he had. He said, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. He said, I have a dream. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Dr. King had a dream. An outrageous dream. A scary dream. A reckless dream. If someone were ever to try King's dream, it would surely cause way more trouble than it would ever do any good. The Supreme Court could say whatever it wanted to, but everyone knew that white children and black children weren't supposed to play together. It's not natural. It's not normal. It's not the way things go. And yet Dr. King said that he had a dream. People of God, I bring all this up because I want to know. How do you break the spell? I believe that someone or something had cast a spell over our country for a very long time. You can call it sin if you like, but it's a little different than we usually think about sin. It, it had gotten sort of so deep down, it was just like the air we breathe. Under the influence of this spell, racism and discrimination were as American as apple pie. And I believe there is still a spell cast over us. For sure, there are new versions of that same old racism, but it's not just racism. No, this most devious spell is the spell of what I will just call It's the spell of status quo. It is the spell of those who say, that's just the way things are. And it is a powerful spell. And it is especially dangerous for Christians. Because building your career will always be more normal than serving the poor. Mindless scrolling on your phone will always be more normal than prayer. Cynicism will always be more normal than hope. How do you break the spell? In some parts of our country in 1952, being a black-hating racist was roughly equivalent to being a good American citizen. That's what was natural, that's what was normal, that's the way things go. And it didn't seem to matter that the kingdom of God was so obviously opposed 
to the powers of racism. It didn't seem to matter that what God is doing in this world is not dividing people, but bringing people together around his gospel and around his son. It didn't matter. The spell was powerful, even in the church. How do you break the spell? For many in this country, at least as they look back now, they point to one particular speech that served as a turning point in breaking the spell of widespread racism. What was it? I, I have a plan. I, I have an agenda. I have an initiative. I have a dream. There's something about a dream. There's something about the outrageous. There's something about the creative and reckless. There's something about dreams that can be more true than what everyone else says is normal. Pastors Sam and Stefan have been harping on this theme for weeks. Trying to help us see how the arrival of Christ at Christmas is not normal. How it completely overturned our concept of who God is and what God could do. They've told us that people were perplexed by Jesus. They were mystified by him. They were changed for having met him. And that if we really met him, we'd be changed too. I think what our pastors have been trying to do is what Franz Kafka once said about reading good books. Kafka, famous writer 100 years ago, he once wrote to a friend of his. And he asked, uh, if the books we are reading do not wake us up, why then do we read them? He said, a good book must be like an ice axe to break the sea frozen inside us. People of God, we have all become accustomed to a variety of different normals. It is normal to look at pornography on my phone. It is normal to neglect my family for the sake of my career. It is normal to buy things in order to feel better. It is normal to invest more time on my social media than I invest in the living, breathing people around me. We have all become accustomed to a variety of different normals. And, and this normal is like a frozen sea inside us. It is like a spell cast over us. And we begin to believe that there is no other way. And people of God, this is a most dangerous spiritual condition. Because the first thing these spells tend to block out is our ability to perceive what God is up to. Under the influence of the spell of normal, it is difficult to see God at all. Every miracle is merely a coincidence. Every expression of hope, that's just naive optimism. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, I believe that God took 81 verses to explain the year of Jubilee, even though it was never going to be practiced, because he needed to break up the frozen seas inside his people. 
See, God's law from start to finish is mostly about two things. Honoring God and caring for the poor. And almost nothing gets more in the way of honoring God and caring for the poor than our very normal preoccupation with accumulating wealth. Almost nothing. And so God forced his people to imagine a world where wealth was so dangerous that we just give it up every 50 years. A world where hoarding my wealth made no sense, but generosity and justice made all the sense in the world. You see, Jubilee is a glimpse of the kingdom of God. A kingdom made up of very different priorities than what we call normal. Uh, Desmond Tutu died this past week. Um, you know what Desmond Tutu liked to call the kingdom of God? Anybody know? He referred to it as God's dream. Here's the bottom line. If the Christ we encountered at Christmas is half as radical as your pastors have suggested, then we might be wise to think bigger for our New Year's resolutions this year. Because if your life is anything like mine, there is altogether too much normal in it. It's normal that my friend's circle and my church are mostly white. It's normal that I never seem to get around to sharing my faith with anyone. It's normal that my giving and volunteering get the last of my money and the last of my time. It's normal. And if that's normal, then we should pray for an ice axe. I think we need impossible dreams and active imaginations to see what God is doing in this place, to see the kingdom of God. I think our moral imaginations have become lodged within ever-narrowing political ideologies. We've forced our faith to comply with just whatever our favorite talking head has to say, with little care for what God has to say. And I think we've lost the thread of our radical faith. We're practicing modest religious exercises rather than throwing ourselves into God's dream. And if this is the year we throw ourselves into God's dream, if this is the year we take seriously God's call to love and serve and sacrifice with abandon, we will need our imaginations awakened. Our perspectives have been socked in by the frozen seas of normal. Our point of view has been withered beneath a frightening spell. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, Paul has this prayer for the little Ephesian church. Paul says, I pray that you will have power. Power to do what? Power to pay their budget? Power to staff their programs? Power to keep the secular forces of culture at bay? 
He says he prays that they would have power to grasp, to imagine how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God in Christ Jesus. He says God's love surpasses knowledge. It goes beyond what's normal. And then Paul says this. He says, this God who loves you is able to do immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine. Now, with love that good at the foundation of our identity, what's really the risk for you to step into God's dream? If that is what we have already gained, and it cannot be taken away, what do we have to lose? Do you have an idea of what God wants of your life, but it seems kind of foolish? Do you feel like God might be calling you or us to do something, but you just you feel too weak? Well, guess what? The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Do you have an impossible dream of what God is up to and where he might be taking you? Dear friends, there is nothing that is impossible with our God. Let's pray together. Living God, break apart the frozen seas within us. Help us to perceive and receive your kingdom. Whatever the cost, however crazy we may feel like it makes us look, Lord, give us faith to live in and for you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.